Kids Comics. And here are your hosts, Michael and Andrew Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Hey Kids Comics. And this one's special. No, not really. I just like to think <laughs> what makes all it more, Well, they are all special. Yeah, so. but the fact that you had to mention that this one was special. Yes, was... It's, we're going to cover lots of topics that are not covered on other podcasts. <laughs> right, okay. World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> that famously niche topic. Yes, that famously very... niche topic. <laughs> no one ever really speaks of no it. No really. one ever mentions World War You'd be War forgiven II. for not knowing what it was. Yeah, if... there are some people who don't. <laughs> Believe it or not. Uh, yeah, today we are covering battle action. Not just the glorious hardcover celebration that was released. Was it about this time last year? July last year? 2022, for those that are paying attention. Uh, but also briefly the five-issue series that followed it and the 2000 AD issue that fell through a time warp in 1982. Was it? Something like that? We'll get into that. I have done my research, but first of all, I'm in a book. Yeah? I'm in a read book. Galloping Galaxies, put together by Jim Beard, published by Becky Books, is a collection of essays about growing up Star Trek, but you didn't have to grow up with it in the 60s. It could be right. whenever yeah. you discovered it and grew up with it. Yeah. And it's got, right, really important people in it who've actually written your proper books. Okay. Dancy Holder. Robert Greenberger, who used to edit DC Star Trek comic. Right. Uh, there's lots of people. Greg Cox, Dayton Ward, they've all written Star Trek novels. Actual proper Keith Hardy Candido. Paul Cooperberg used to write comics. I think he still does. I don't know. Tom Bravoot's in it. Right, okay. Editor Tom Bravoot yeah, okay. of Marvel Comics fame. Yeah. And then, on page 166, there's this Northern Chancer. Hey, look. It me. It is. It me. So you've got a 10-page one as I've well? I've got a 10-page essay. In this book uh, about growing up Star Trek. So go and order it. Again, Galloping Around the Cosmos, edited by Jim Beard, published by Becky Books. Go and buy it. Read all the excellent essays by all the published authors. <laughs> and then read that one by that chancer who got lucky. So I heartily encourage you. It's good. good okay. Book. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's essay is really good. I love that there's a comic one by Ron Hill. Very nice. Which I think is actually really good. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. So those unashamed plug. Yeah. Over with. Is this your is this your comp copy as well? Yeah, that's my comp copy. Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's my comp copy. You're famous now. You've made I it. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> this, this is this is success. You finally got it. Is it? Well, I got paid for it. Well, don't even, so, don't we go. Published author and all that. All wins. Yeah, that's one for the CV. Hmm. I keep thinking, should I tell work? And then I think nah, that you're a published that I'm author. A published author. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll mention it on job applications. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it'll get me a job, but you know what. Uh, first up, we'll we'll start with an email. Michael Beal Beale, Who's Michael Beale? It's an evil twin. Beetle Bailey. <laughs> yeah. He's a comic character, isn't he? Beetle Bailey. I'm sure. I'm sure. Michael Bailey emailed in. Fellas, Michael, cracking new episode, enjoying it immensely. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. Two points right at the top. Number one, it's odd that Michael brings up Night Quest because having recently done a panel at Dragon Con about that whole saga. I came to the conclusion that the main thing I think the Death and Return saga has over Nightfall is that it's a more linear story. Because of the triangle system, the story has a very clear order and felt more like one big story, whereas Nightfall gets muddled in the middle because all the creative teams did their own things. It always comes down to taste, but that's how I preferred it. Because that's because yeah. you said... I... The creative teams in Death and Return of Superman don't have enough time to play... 
Yeah, whereas, whereas I prefer the openness of Knight's Quest and that mm. it is just creators doing whatever they want because you're under the illusion of this is how things are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're selling the idea that Jean-Paul Valli yeah. is now going to be Batman forever and always. Which, Amen. Which is why I prefer the openness towards the linear story of... Yeah. of but again, you know, they are both stories at the end of the day. It's personal taste. Well, well, that's what Michael says. It doesn't mean one is better than the other. In fact, I think it speaks more to the characters and the creators. The Batman creative staff would team up, but prefer to work alone. The Superman team worked together. Weird, that. No, I mean, that's, that's quite apt in many ways. <laughs> Number two, question about wanting to have had more time with the various Superman. Given that one of your criticisms of Funeral for a Friend was that some of it felt like filler, <laughs> wouldn't there be a chance of the same problem if they stretched out Rain to explore the characters more? The thing I like about Rain is that it's so fast-paced that while I was into the different Superman, I didn't necessarily need to know more about them. But that's just me. Love the show, as always, Steve. Until next time, Mikey might be. Well, what do you think about that? Because that was your criticism. Yeah, and I feel like that's that's perfectly valid. And I understand the the hypocrisy of that comment. We're all hypocrites uh, but, at the end of the day. But I think it's more just a case of the two, you know, two different stories. As a story in and of itself, I felt like Funeral for a Friend was kind of stuck in the mud and not moving. Mm. Whereas, whereas Rain is, you know, it is it is the summer blockbuster one. Yeah. And yeah, it does exactly what it does. And you learn just as much as you need to know by the end of it. Like, you're not going, oh, but there's still loose plot threads. Yeah. It's just like I was saying, one of the things that I liked about Knight's Quest was the kind of full stop behind the statement of this is how things are now. We wouldn't have got the Joker directs a movie storyline in the middle of Reign of the Superman. Yeah. I mean, obviously not with the Joker, but you know what I mean. Yeah, so that kind of, uh, you know, that's... That kind uh, of sidebar. Yeah, and I, I kind of like that. And I like I like Reign, you know, it is it is one of my favourite ones, but Reign is the summer blockbuster, whereas Night's Quest is the TV show. Hmm. Uh, you know, the mid-season uh, kind of thing. So that's uh, there's completely different types of story, and, you know, maybe one's not better than the other one, but... See, I know, I don't think I like both of them. I, I, I think... I would have liked to have seen the alternate version where Reign of the Superman is just a season of a TV show and not a two-hour film. Mm. See, Reign of the Superman is, like you said, it's the summer blockbuster and the Batman one takes its time developing who Jean Valley, Paul Valley is. Mm. Ultimately, though, I think Death is more successful because it feels like a complete... Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Knights, Nightfall, Knights Quest, and Knights End. Knights End feels rushed. Yeah. Because yeah, they've got to get to zero hour. Zero hour is happening this month. Right, okay. And therefore, Knights End is rushed. So the serialization of the comics was to its detriment. Yeah. There. Whereas it feels like the Superman one was allowed the time it was allowed. Largely because no one expected it to be that successful. Right. So they were allowed to just do what they wanted to do. Yeah. And crucially, unlike the Clone Saga, sales weren't on the backs going, this is selling, keep doing it. Right, okay, yeah. Which, if they had done and you had got more Cyborg Superman, and yeah. it may have, like the Clone Saga, wore out its welcome. Yeah, and I think one of the benefits of, of Rain is as well is the kind of... the shock... Mm. And the impact of the kind of plot twists wouldn't have had the same kind of effect had you already gotten bored of these characters. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've all got all these Superman and then you've got Co-City happening. But if you'd stretch this out to a year, maybe two, and it's like, oh, well, I don't care anymore. Yeah, see, that is an issue. And 
both of them, both Nightfall and Death of, along with No Man's Land, I think are still the most successful of that type of comic book crossover that they've ever done. Yeah, we've not really had anything like that ever since. Certainly nothing as successful in terms of they managed to weave that many creators and that many different books and that many characters yeah. into one cohesive whole. Yeah. I think No Man's Land is the pinnacle. And I, th- I wonder why if that's why Denny O'Neill called it a day after that, because he was like, I can't better this. Right, yeah. I'm having, I've had enough. I'm going. All right. And interestingly, all three of them got novels. Yeah. So that linear storytelling clearly worked because the novels don't really change very much if memory serves. Right, okay. They do wrap it up better. Denny O'Neill, if memory serves, because we talked about this when we did Nightfall, mm. Denny O'Neill cuts a lot of the comics lore out of the novel. Right. Because he's obviously got his mind on the fact that people picking this book up may never have read a comic. And Roger Stern in The Death of Superman goes out of his way to explain the comics lore okay. to the people who are reading the book who've never read a comic. Yeah. And honestly, in a novel, I prefer Denny O'Neill's approach. Right, okay. That stuff's irrelevant if you're not a comic reader. Cut yeah. it. Get yeah. rid of it. But I'm quite ruthless about stuff like that, aren't I? But I suppose there's the argument to be made there is, let's be honest, if you're not a comic reader, why are you picking it up you're, no, no, you're less likely to pick up that novel if you're possibly. not coming from that background but the thing to remember is back then bookstores were mm. everywhere and remember i got my copies of nightfall and death of superman in florida one of our yeah. florida trips we walked into the version of waterstones which is it's bounds and noble, and, noble yeah. and they were right there front and center okay when you walked into that store they were they were on the display shelf i suppose they have the benefit of batman and superman are household names yeah so there may be people who are like who've watched the Batman movies, are fans of the movies, say, and maybe have watched the animated show, right? Who read and go, okay, I'll give this book a go. Who may never have picked up a comic in their life. And I suppose you've still got the shock value of like Death of Superman, yeah. Nightfall. You've still got that shock value of, oh, I don't know anything about these characters other than what I've seen in the film. So, oh, what's going on here? And it's a good cheap way of getting people to experience the story. One yeah. novel that sold for what seven dollars ninety nine or ten dollars yeah. or whatever it was versus a series of trade paperbacks or having to hunt out back issues and yeah I mean the regular person can't be bothered with that but the no, novel yeah well that's I mean that's a problem with comics in general sometimes isn't it the yes. whole the, the expensive checklisting well as we record this. I've dropped Batman and Spider-Man from my pull list. Oh, you finally dropped Spider-Man? I've dropped all the subsidiaries. Okay. Because they're both entering a period of... Spider-Man's doing gang war. Right. Again. Okay. And Batman's doing Gotham war. Again. Yeah, which is dumb. Both books start in a double-sized extra issue that's nothing to do with the main series. The book, yeah, and then ends with the book end Both books are then spread out all over. So with The Curse of Spider-Man, it's going into Master of Kung Fu. Yeah. A Daredevil miniseries. Right. A Spider-Woman series. Like, I don't read this crap. I'm never going to read this crap. Yeah. I'm not buying them. Could you have said the same thing about... Night's Quest as well, when when that bled into... But I've thought about this. Okay, of course. Back then, yeah. not only did Nightfall, Night's Quest, etc., 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 really only focus on the Bat books, with occasional diversions into Robin and Catwoman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but the Robin and Catwoman stuff was kind of parallel. Yeah, You didn't have to read it. You could stick with the core Bat books and still get everything you needed. But even then, you still had to, say, get Legends of the Dark Knight, which was a prestige, more expensive yes, comic. Yes, because you, that yeah. was the first time Legends of the Dark Knight had gone back on its word. Yeah. And 
And people kicked off about that at the time in the letters pages. Yeah. People said, you said Legends of the Dark Knight was going to be completely continuity free. Yeah. The Batman book we could pick up if we weren't interested in buying all the other Bat books. And here you've crossed over into this series. What's going on? But even then, if you're not getting it, because it would have been more of an expensive book because mm. of its format. And now you've got to, not only have you got to buy other titles that you're not particularly, you know, maybe buying, but then you've also got to buy the expensive one yeah. that you weren't buying. Valid. But again, a core Batman book. Yeah, okay. What is a core Spider-Man book about having to buy a Luke Cage issue? Yeah, yeah. What What's Luke Cage got to do with Spider-Man? Other than they, they know each other and hang out occasionally. Well, but DC's thing now, which is also one of the problems, not only are they doing this, but they're also having a new miniseries as well that is also the crossover. Yeah. So you've not only got to pick up, say... You know, Batman and Detective and then Catwoman and then Teen Titans and then, you know, maybe even a Green Lantern one. But yeah, and you've also got to get the tie-in miniseries yeah. as well because that's an extra six-issue miniseries. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I've, I subscribe to Tom Bravo's Substack mm. and he says on that, and I know he's towing the corporate line in a lot of cases, okay. but he says in that that fans bitch and moan about crossovers, but the bottom line is they sell and they improve sales on the books they cross over into. My counter question to that, though, is yeah. how many people are like me? Right. How many readers flat out stick their heels in the sand and say, no, I'm not buying it? Well, it's also a case of it's easy to say, well, they sell because you've looked at the figures and you're like, oh, they sell. But also they're only selling because the story that you're telling is stretching <laughs> out into them. But they no don't care. Yeah, yeah, as long well, as you bought it. it. Um, Death Metal... Um, the the Batman crossover from a few years back was the moment that I kind of felt like my love of comics at the moment died with that series mm. because that was one where I uh, I bought every single issue I went through the checklist I got them all because they were all t- yeah, but of... you used to love your checklist well though. yeah but they were all builders it's the big thing you know you got to get them all and the story spreads out and sorry okay and I got them all and it's just, it was incredibly expensive. You know, my monthly comics were coming up to maybe like, you know, 50, 60, I think even like reaching 70 pounds a month just for mm. all of these ones. Um, only for the, the, the kind of crux of the series and the kind of end point to be, we'll re- reset continuity, none of this matters anyway. But they do that and, every other month. And that's one of the things where this, surely this, because it's still in print, you know, they've, they've done absolute versions, they've done omnibuses, they've always done, and, you know, oh, it sells, it was a huge success. It's like, yeah, it sold and was a huge success because you were making people spend over a hundred pound on this one story hmm. but they weren't like, making you that will always be their argument but well but but there's always that argument of yes you are if the story that if you can tell a story in six issues mm. but you're spreading that out into one issue of six titles that has not sold any better than what it should have done just because your figures and your stats say that it has it's not more of a success it's not more successful it's the same success but you've bled more out of people yeah 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 that's my thing if you're going to tell this gang war storyline tell it in amazing spider-man that book's twice monthly yeah you've got more than enough pages to tell this story without dragging in other miniseries that people and again i would love to know the other side of brave boots argument how many people like me just go no yeah so how many sales do they not get i mean they can't chart that can they because they've not got them it's 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 just it it's shane by the tie-ins, yeah. <laughs> you saw him. It was a success. <laughs> it sold well. Yeah, all right, fair enough. I don't know what mine. I, mean, I was looking. I got my comic shipment this month, mm. 
and um, it was 36 quid for the month. And it, I'm looking at it and I'm realising I am still spending the same amount per week on comics that I did when you were a kid. Yeah. When you were little, I had a budget. I always allowed myself £10 a week okay. on comics. And essentially, I'm still spending the same. I'm just buying considerably less, obviously. Yeah. I, 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 well, I, I, I can pinpoint that is where my interest in comics kind of died. And ever since then, I get very little monthly. This month, I bought more for Dana than so I did right, myself. So, right, you should qualify that. You're interested in the monthly grind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just... You, don't, you still love comics. Yeah. You but, bought how many this month? Well, yeah, I bought all old ones. Yeah. And I think that's 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 it. It's, it's such a shame that everything's kind of going backwards because we're pushed in a situation where there's nothing interesting and everything's expensive anyway. So why would I want to pay however much a month when for 30 quid I can go back and buy a complete story in a trade? Mm-hmm. It does. Well, it, that begs the question, do you think this is the death knell for the monthly periodical? No, but I don't think... The I, I, I don't think publishers know how to, to manage the media. Mm. Uh, I think we've got the serialization of the Marvel movies and say Marvel, for instance, aren't looking at, well, let's reflect that in the comics. They're ignoring the comics to kind of focus on mm. serial. And, it, and then you've got DC as well, who are more interested in events. And that's all it kind of feels like. It's just we're gearing up for the next event or we've got another oh Venom's selling Venom's popular character that's giving more time it's it's like there's no interest in the monthly soap opera serials or the stories it's just event it's what's next year's summer hardback Mm. gonna be what graphic novels are we gonna want to be selling what you know it's what anniversary is it of Hush next year that we can re-release that? Uh, There's, I genuinely feel like your big two just don't care about the comics anymore. They just care about the events and the trades and the the repackaging. Uh, it's 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 it sucks, but you know who who? Why would I want to pay and read monthly things when I can just wait for them to release the trades next year? Mm. Um, but then even then you read the trades and it's like, oh, but then you've got to get the next issue because we did an event here and now you've got to buy three trades when you could have bought well, one. Well, that's, that's the, the, the trades have shrunk from six issues to five. Yeah. And in some cases four. But the prices haven't shrunk. No, if anything, they've, they've, they've gone up. Yeah. And it's, you now think, you're now looking at the trades and thinking, well, this is flimsy for £15. Yeah. Even if that's cheaper than the actual issues. And I think that's where things like Image are shining more so than anything else. Image, you've got 100 plus runs. You've got characters and series that are running for absolute, you know, years, mm-hmm. even decades, where it's the one story and then, you know, no events, nothing like that, because they, they care. They're like, all oh, right, okay, you want to tell a story? Go tell that story. And that's it. They leave the creatives to do whatever they want. Well, where's Saga up to now? Is that in the 60s now? Oh, God, yeah, maybe. And they've just left them. And it it's weird, Saga. It's like it got all this buzz at the beginning. Mm. And it's kind of tailed off a bit. Like nobody seems to talk about it, but it's yeah. still there, being published month yeah. in month out. So it must be doing all right. It's kind of like it's kind of like your big publishers, for whatever reason, don't care about the creatives or the creative aspect, and that's where Image and things like that will always win out. We've just seen um, Francis Manipal and Jeff Johns and Fabok and all mm-hmm. of those others have just created their own studio, and you're just seeing essentially, you know 
more and more independence because the you you it's it's all corporations yeah. and businesses now. It's not it's not a creative media. It's a money making yeah. thing. And well, Patch Zurch has just done the same thing. Did you follow him? No. He's just said on Twitter. I saw a famous Marvel editor say. I don't owe any loyalty to freelancers. Yeah. And I thought, well, that works both ways. Yeah. And so he's gone off and he's doing Solomon Kane comics because yeah. somebody pulled him up saying, what's the difference between doing Solomon Kane licensed and Superman? Yeah. He said, well, I've got a much more free hand here. Yeah. Other than treating the character with respect, I can tell whatever story I want to tell. Yeah. The licensor mm. has been incredibly agreeable. To, for them, it's just keeping the character in the public eye. Yeah. And I am allowed to tell whatever stories I want to tell with the Solomon Kane character. Yeah. I can't do that with Superman. Yeah. There's always somebody over my shoulder. Yeah. And he says, and I'm just a little bit bored of drawing superheroes. And if you can't say you've got any loyalty to your freelancers, well, all right, I, that works both ways. I'll go somewhere else. Yeah. And he, so he's gone and often done... I don't know who publishes this Solomon Kane stuff, whether it's Dynamite or not, because Dynamite yeah. do good license. The Lord yeah. of the Jungle series, I've, I've thought about us covering that. Yeah. That Tarzan series that Dan Jurgens did is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I loved it. I mean, he didn't do the art. I can't remember the artist's name. He's a Spanish artist, but it is so John Buscema yeah. influenced as to be John Buscema. Well, it's just interesting because, you know, what are the most evergreen, long-lasting critically acclaimed fan love books it's your creator owned ones or mm. your shorter stories or you know people fondly look back and they go oh, I, I loved this run of this yeah. character it's and not you spider-man it's the lee ditko spider-man literally yeah you know you, you look back on things like oh even you know recent recent memory you got like say batman you got the morrison batman then you got the snyder batman even the tom king batman run mm -hmm. as it's fans people love runs and it's like the companies don't see that it's no. like oh well this character's selling, so we have to do more of that. Yeah. It's like, well, no, the character's not. The creative. When are. you talk about what great Daredevil stories are, it's always the Frank Miller run. Yeah. The Ed Brubaker run. Yeah. It's always a particular the creative's work on that character. Yeah. It's not, well, issue 138 was good. Yeah. It's, no, the Miller run was great. And it's, it's you're right, it's the, the Fantastic Four, it's the Burn run. Yeah. Thor, the Simonson run. It's a, a creative person who comes in with a vision for that book. Yeah. And is essentially let alone to do what they want to do with it within the perimeters of that character. Yeah. See, that's where I think the Tom King stuff went a little awry. In right. that suddenly I think he was given a little bit too much creative freedom. Yeah. To do what he wanted. Because I, I still think that run started really well. I loved that first issue where he basically does Superman Returns with Batman. Yeah, yeah. And Batman has to save that plane. I loved all of that. And then the minute it starts getting into the bat, cat, cat, bat stuff, it's just it just gets a little bit nauseating. Yeah, well, I, I, I wasn't a fan of it from the start. No, uh, you were, then, oh, yeah. But it's, I mean, to completely contradict everything I've just said, that was a bizarre one. And that's something, again, that we've been seeing happening. Every other book was a, a Tom King book, mm. and every other, you know, it was always Jeff Johns and that. It's like, and again, I completely understand how contradictory this sounds to myself, but you'll get every once in a while a hot writer or a hot artist who's on everything. Yeah. Then Tom Taylor, Tom King, yeah, who's the others? And that, and that, that also gets a little bit suffocated at the same time as well. It's like I just want to pick up something else. Mm. I mean, that's not. There is good stuff out there. I, I personally, I'm just finding how a lot of the good stuff is being published by other publishers. I'm buying a lot more Dynamite and a lot more Image. And where they have more, more creative yeah, freedom. Yeah, where they've got more. But that, that's not saying. I'm I, again Immortal Thor. 
Mm. I think he's really good. Again, I'll lend you them when I've got like a year's worth oh, of I've got, issues. I've got the first one. Oh, right. that's on my that's on my order list. All right. JMS's um, Captain America was had a very good first issue. Okay. And I've got the second issue now. I've not read it yet. All right. So that. So he's still writing it. Yeah. Two issues in. Yeah, he's, he's done two issues. <laughs> Let's see how it, how it goes. They're publishing his omnibus. They're republishing <laughs> omnibus again. Right. And that is a great run. Okay. It's over there on the bookshelf because I, right. I bought it for you. But when you left, you left it here. So I've claimed it. Um, but the problem with it is it doesn't end, does it? it oh, the far one. Yeah, yeah another, he, another creator takes over. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. Anyway, should we talk about today's comics, seeing as we yeah. spent 25 minutes there? I mean, we do enjoy comics. <laughs> yes, we do. We do. It's just, it's, it's a very different kind of comics that we're enjoying nowadays. And if I go to read a superhero stuff, it does tend to be older stuff now yeah because i don't feel like they're progressing any of them they're not adding anything anymore well i'd like the thing we mentioned on our pulp episode i'm just going back rereading all the brubaker phillips stuff and Mm. rereading criminal and it's just you get issues that take you time to read them and it's yes yeah comics are cool when comics are treated with respect yes and you've got a problem now that warner brothers have noticed that dc exists (laughs) yeah Disney own Marvel, and so an awful lot of it now is just cookie cutter, yeah, predictable, boring. There's there's nothing. Even you know, even when you look back on what the older the olden days, when it was just the illusion of change. At least you felt something was changing. Yeah, even if it was an illusion. Yeah. Now it's just like nah. It's quite telling that the facsimile reprints have been so successful. Yep. Let's learn from that now. Yeah. You know, what works about that? Well, I've, I've said that to you. Do you think Marvel could re-release facsimile reprints of every like, issue of Tomb of Dracula? Yeah. Every issue of Micronauts and ROM, stuff that was popular. Yeah. And make as much money as if they did a new Dracula or ROM comic? I know. Do you know? Because I think they could. I think they could quite happily just live off that. Because there's people like me who go, yeah, I'll buy every issue of Tomb of Dracula. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's fair. I would also just, just re-release the essentials. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it in print. The yeah, thing with Tomb yeah, of Dracula yeah. now, my essentials are a little bit battered because they're not good. Yeah, the well, essentials they, they were supposed are, to be cheap, yeah. weren't they? They're not collectible. Yeah. The paper's really crappy and stuff like that. So I was Googling the other day, can I buy them again? And even the epic collections, because they're out of print, yeah. are like 250 quid. Yeah. And you're like, dude, you keep these evergreens in print. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how they sell. So anyway, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, <laughs> battle action. We talk about battle action. Let's battle and action were two different picture strips for boys because that's how it worked back then. There were of boys' course, yeah. comics, there were girls' yeah. comics. That's what they were billed like on the cover, anyway. And were both produced by IPC magazines in an attempt to bolster the then flogging British comics market. Battle first appeared in newsagents in March 1975 and featured such strips as Major Easy a cross between James Coburn and Clint Eastwood, Spinball, which mixed Death Race 2000 with Rollerball to great effect, The Rat Pack, a Dirty Dozen-inspired strip in which the cast were all criminals, D-Day Dawson, in which Dawson, a soldier who, unknown to his comrades, had a piece of shrapnel lodged near his heart which could kill him at any time and thus led his team in Devil Maker adventures and its most famous strip, Charlie's War. 
Written by Pat Mills with art by Joe Colquhoun. I think that's how you pronounce it. Charlie's War eschewed the gung-ho approach of other war strips and instead focused not only on the heroism of the men fighting in the Great War, so World War I, whilst also demonstrating the death and tragedy therein. It also received acclaim for being the first such strip to show the heroism of the many Irish soldiers instead of portraying them as feckless drunkards. Battle was considered a tougher rival to the work being published by DC Thompson, but the creator of Battle, Pat Mills, felt he could go further. And so he did. Much further. In 1976, Mills and IPC launched Action, a comic series specifically designed to push the envelope on how much the weekly newsagents could tolerate in terms of violence, blood and gore being published in a seven-pence comic for kids. Mills felt that, as good as Battle was, it still mostly fell into the same tropes as other British comics. Mostly middle-class heroes with either people of colour or lower-class people as sidekicks. Mills aimed to change that. As with Battle, many of the strips would take inspiration from the films and television shows of the time, with the most popular being Hookjaw, who took his name from a large fishing hook stuck under his ever-hungry mouth. Hookjaw was essentially a blatant rip-off of Jaws and saw Hookjaw chewing his way through the crew of an oil rig, chomping on unfortunate holidaymakers on a Caribbean island resort and devouring unfortunates off the south coast of England, all on panel. Dirty Harry and tough cop show The Sweeney was the inspiration for Dredger, a former SAS lad who grew up on the mean streets of gangster-driven London, now a secret agent. Hellman of Hammer Force was a rare British war strip to feature a sympathetic Wamukt. How do you say that? Vermacht. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Vermacht officer as the lead protagonist. And Death Game 1999, as you can probably guess from the title, was a rip-off of Death Race 2000. However, the level of violence and action proved too much for the guardians of British morals. Despite selling over 180,000 copies a week... God, those are sales figures people <laughs> kill for nowadays. Murray Whitehouse, yeah, her again, and her National Viewers and Listeners Association, The Sun, and The Daily Mail, so all the usual suspects, all had action in their sights. The strips that provoked the strongest reaction, Kids Rule OK, about an ultra-violent future where a plague has killed off all the adults, leaving only tribes of juveniles to fight it out on the lawless streets of Britain. And look out for Lefty, a strip about a football hooligan who turned out to be a talented footballer, were both singled out. Action was threatened with a boycott by two of the biggest retailers on the high street, W.H. Smith's and John Menzies, and this led to the comic being pulled with the October 23rd, 1976 issue. When it relaunched on the 4th of December, 1976, it was a shadow of its former self. For the sake of historical accuracy... Let's point out that two of the figures involved in targeting action were BBC TV presenter and everybody's favourite cuddly uncle, Frank Boff, and the head of the Football League, Alan Hardacre. Trigger warning for some of the language that's going to come up. Hardacre may have felt that a comic taking satirical sideswipes at football hooliganism was a bridge too far. But he had no problem with racism, having successfully dissuaded English clubs from taking part in European competitions on the ground that there would be too many wogs and dagos. 
Yes, let's listen to this guy for our morality, <laughs> should we? Boff, who ripped up a copy of Action on live TV, was later fired by the BBC for taking cocaine and being photographed wearing ladies' underwear at a prostitute's party. He also was expressed a keen interest in sadomasochism. Not going to say his downfall <laughs> didn't bring a wry smile to my lips. Now... You know, what people get up to in the privacy of their own home is entirely up to them. But don't be sanctimonious about it. It's always telling the people who take up a problem with something. There's a lot yeah. of projecting going on sometimes. Yes, yes. And anyone who rips up art like that on television, I don't care who you are. I don't care what the art is. I'm someone who doesn't think you should burn Mein Kampf. I mean, Nazis burn books. That's... Well, in as in history, has anybody who burned books ever been on the good side? Well, Exactly. One of the children whose brain was forever mulched by action and battle was Garth Ennis, who even had a letter published in the comic when he was a kid. He championed the comics in the letters page of Preacher and his own series, War Stories and Battlefields, and obviously was the influence of these strips on his sleeve. Nevertheless, it was still a surprise to see a brand new, here, no digital filth, hardcover annual, entitled Battle Action, which came out in June 2022. Oh, there you go. I wrote it down. I mean, I think I remembered that one. <laughs> Featuring all new stories by Ennis with a cover by Andy Clark and Dylan Teague, Battle Action featured revival strips for Johnny Red with art by Keith Burns, The Sarge by PJ Holden, Crazy Keller by Chris Burnham, Dredger by John Higgins, Hellman vs. Glory Rider by Mike Dory, Kids Rule OK by Kev O'Neill, and Nina Petrova and the Angels of Death by Patrick Goddard. Nina was a character who had appeared in Johnny Red, but had never appeared in her own strip before this issue. All the strips and text pieces were written by Garth Ennis. In some case, Ennis chose to merge two strips together in a way to homage the British comics industry's habit of doing just that with poor selling comics. If a comic had exciting news for all readers on the front, there was a merger. That normally felt there was a merger going on, yeah. It also allowed certain characters to meet each other in a way that wasn't done before. Think of it like Superman meeting Spider Man, but with more aerial dogfights and violence. <laughs> They could have done aerial dogfights in Superman vs. Spider-Man, couldn't yeah, they, really? Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have lasted long, <laughs> but they could have done it. Anyway, battle action. Were you aware of battle in action in any way? Not knowingly. Right. Like, you know, growing up, obviously, when you see comics in newsagents, there's always comics like this, even still. Yeah. To a, to the commando reprints that you sent me the other day. Yeah, but wasn't like I was not like consciously aware of them. Yeah. All right, fair enough. You don't, do you not remember him being mentioned in Preacher? Well, no. Oh, do you know? Right. I, guess, I guess it's one of those things where just like, if you don't even know what it is, you don't kind of like remember that. He had a competition. Right. If you remember, he would give away signed scripts yeah. and art in some cases yeah. to people who would send him issues he didn't have. Oh, really? He was trying to build up a full right. collection. Okay, do you okay. remember that? No. Because right. I, I knew he gave out scripts and that, but because I, I, I remember it usually just being like... If you guess the quote, yeah, there was the, there was that, and there was also he'd give out special ones, like maybe signed out or whatever. Yeah, if people could help him fill his collection right. back on action, that's cool. and I think he did in yeah. the pages of preacher. I think he did eventually say, right, I've completed my collection. Right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, all because of readers wanting that kind of thing. Okay. So that, that was quite cool. So anyway, yeah, the first strip in this hardcover annual, I loved when I first saw that because mm. I think I got this at a 
did I get it at the lakes? I don't know. I can't remember. But I I know you saw it, and it's it's like one of the old annuals that used to come out at Christmas. Yeah. The only thing wrong with it was it came out in summer. And I was kind of like, maybe they should have released it as a Christmas thing, because that would have been cool. And it would have been in regular news agents. Mm. Which I'm going to beat that drum throughout this entire episode, lovely listener. This should have been as widely available as humanly possible. Because there is nothing in this that anyone can't pick up and just read. Yeah, in- intentionally so. Yeah, this this isn't enmeshed in continuity. Any backstory that you need is given in the text pieces about who the characters are. So all of that's though. You could just go out and buy this and read it. I encourage you to do so because it's fucking excellent. Uh, after a text pairs introduction from Garth Ennis where he talks about battle and action and the various different strips, which is nice. The first strip is Johnny Red and versus, sorry, Screamer of the Stuckers. Screamer of the Stuckers also being its own strip. Johnny Redburn was a 19-year-old scouser who joins a Soviet fighter-bomber unit in the fight against the Nazi invaders. Red, still piloting his British hurricane, Screamer was a thoroughly nasty piece of work. Otto Screamer flies his Stuka dive bomber against the enemies of the Third Reich. The first story in this annual sees Screamer, sorry, Screamer challenge Red to a one-on-one dogfight his Messerschmitt versus the Hurricane. It's like that great episode of Werewolf where Wingshauser flew Werewolf 2. It's just like that. Okay. <laughs> Learn that thing. While I'm of a mind, I'll let you. <laughs> I love Stringfellow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you like this one? This I, is just a new real dogfight story, isn't it? I didn't care for this one. Did you not? Like, I didn't oh, dislike oh. it, but there was nothing in it that made me... I just didn't care for it. And I was, I was kind of waiting to finish it. See, Nothing. I like that. I loved that. I thought this was a great opener because it's just an action beat. I didn't know if it was just me as well. There's a lot of radio chatter, and I found myself at times having to go back and reread things to kind of work out yes. what was happening. If there is a flaw to Ennis's War Story stuff, it's sometimes I think he thinks you, as the reader, have got the same in depth knowledge of the war and the yeah. equipment that they used as he has. And. On the one hand, that's a good thing because he doesn't ladle his stories with exposition. Yeah. Like, because in this, he does have a moment where he does say, Where is it? Do you think he has a chance? And there's actually one panel where he says, The Messerschmitt has the edge in speed, climbs higher, dives faster, has better guns. The Hurricane is more maneuverable. Yeah. And that's pretty much the only exposition you get. If Von Jurgen gets behind Johnny, he'll start turning. The Hurricane's turning circle is tighter. The 109 can't stay with him. In fact, if he tries to, he'll actually end up in Johnny's sights. Mm. So you get, you do get enough exposition to understand the difference between the capabilities of the yeah. two aircraft. But I did the same thing. I did have to go back and go, all right, so that's his... Yeah. That's, the art's beautiful. Yeah, especially of the of the planes and the dogfights. Yes, and there's lo- there is a lot of cutting between the, the aerial dogfight and the dialogue, mm. where they kind of are explaining to you what's going on. Yeah. So it, it's easy to follow. It's easy to follow, with the caveat that yeah, I had to do the same thing you did. I did occasionally have to go back and go, all right. So what are they doing here? Yeah. Because the one of the problems with comics is they are still images. Mm. If this was a film, you'd be able to see them fighting it out yeah. and see yeah, yeah, yeah. what they were doing. Whereas in this, you don't have that. So you are relying purely on on the art, which I think carries it mostly. There's not a lot in the way of characterisation. There's not. 
which is is I think it's one of the the benefits and detriments of of this in general here is you kind of get enough to kind of uh, introduce you to the characters, but then at the same time, if the character's not I feel like this annual, the intention is to make you go out and want to read more of them. Yes. There's adverts for the trades well, of yeah. these characters. I was just going to say that that is very definitely a thing, because in the back, you've got adverts for the treasuryofbritishcomics.com. Yeah. Which is uh, collections of Hellman of Hammerforce, collections of The Surge, volume one. You've got the Charlie's War collection, which is three volumes, and Inversion 1984. One of these things is not like the other. Uh, I've got the Inversion 1984 tread. Okay. I bought that down south. I haven't read it yet, but I, I will now, having read these. So it's one of those things, and it might just be personal for myself if I didn't necessarily care for it, but it's you know it's designed to be introductions, but at the same time, it felt like there, there wasn't enough there for this one in particular, for me in particular, yeah. to make me want to read more. I see... <laughs> Johnny Red will show up again, yes. but he shows up as a supplementary character in Nina Petrova. Who was a supplementary character. Originally, his, the yeah. other way around, yeah. I, I felt with this that this was the Scouse kid. Welcome to the Falcon Squadron, boys. He was all right. <laughs> and he's a bit of a bastard and a bit of a rogue, but he's not as roguish as more we'll get on later. Mm. And Otto Screamer is just a, a stereotypical Nazi. Bad guy. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bad for kind of wanting more of that. Give give me more caricatures because they're the fun things. They're the ones that you, <laughs> no, you get that. Yeah, you get that as you go through it. And in the five issues that followed, he does lean into the caricatures. Yeah, but he does also do that thing that Ennis does very well in that he then digs deeper into the caricature and actually gives you a character to give a shit about. See, I don't think there's enough of that because there the, isn't. The, the stories themselves don't give him the space to. No, these. These stories kind of feel like, and obviously, you know, you, it's not fair to maybe compare these stories to his Dynamite War stories yeah, and that. Where he's got three issues to tell his story. Yeah, but it's kind of a bit of a shame because you, you just don't, you know he's competent, you know he can do it, and you can clearly see that these, you know, the the uh, love that he has for these characters and these stories. But unfortunately, because it is essentially like a sample, a taster, it doesn't mm. give you enough. The six, they're about six pages, aren't they? Yeah. Six, seven page strips, that's all they are. Uh, story two, the Sarge was essentially Battle Action's version of Sergeant's Rock or Fury. A battle-hardened warrior takes a ragtag group of young soldiers under his wing and takes them through many dangerous missions. His goal, always to keep his team alive to fight another day whilst taking down as many Nazis as he can. He doesn't always succeed. A cut above this kind of strip, the heart of the main character always rang true, mainly due to the lack of sentimentality and gung-ho attitude. War is hell, and the Sarge knew it. What do you think of this one? This one I enjoyed more. This one I Did read. You? I read this one twice. Oh, right, okay. Um, I, 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 what we're saying about the exposition, this one has a lot of... And so I read it again, not reading the narration, and I enjoyed it more than oh, the story right. itself kind of So once you more. knew who they were and what they were talking about... Yeah. Right, I see what you mean. Because I felt, I, I felt like I was getting to a bit where I was enjoying the action, but the, the narration... You get, like, look at this panel, for instance. You've hmm. got this big box of narration. There's a lot of hefty exposition towards who these characters are and the, uh, you know, which you might have to because you need to get you. But again, to... that's what you were talking about earlier, or what we were talking about earlier. He's explaining the weaponry there yeah. and how that gun can take down that tank if yeah. you do it properly. Yeah. So, yeah, I was reading it. It kind of felt like a bit, 
heavy. Mm. So then going back and reading it and letting the art and the story actually kind of come through a bit more, it was much more of an enjoyable reading. Yeah, I, like you were saying, it's Sergeant Rock, who I'm already quite a big fan of. So it was good to kind of Sergeant see that. Rock always felt not as gung ho. Yeah, didn't it? Sergeant Rock always felt like it was more. Sergeant Fury always felt like it was a bit of a, a romp. Yeah, a bit of a Kelly's hero kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Sergeant Rock always felt like it was taking it much more seriously. Yeah, and I think that helped. It, what helps this one as well? It's black and white. Yeah, that also, and this one feels inherently British, and I, I know there's kind of like this general thing, but typically British dramas tend to be a bit grittier than your american ones we're not as sentimental exactly and that's this comes out through it's sergeant rock but british you know that any of these characters could die at any moment because mm-hmm. they probably will in the in the yeah, actual strip yeah. they don't all make it through yeah and that's not something you'd have in in an american comic again to generalize but your main character is going to be a hero who goes out of his way to make sure yeah. all of these men get through it whereas this has the harsh reality of not everyone made it out of the war yeah, we well, we talked about that when we did the Sergeant Rock. No, Sergeant Fury issue. We've never done any Sergeant Rock. We should we fix have, that. We have. Have we Sergeant. done a Sergeant Rock? I think I've picked an issue, yeah. And to be fair, Sergeant Rock doesn't make it out of the war. Either, should we do it? the Sergeant Rock zombies thing that Bruce Campbell did? Oh, yeah. Should we cover <laughs> yeah. that at some point? <laughs> okay. And maybe a couple of traditional issues of Sergeant Rock as well. Okay. All right, we'll do a proper Sergeant Rock episode. We'll give it its due. Yeah, okay. We won't just generalise. Let's go and read some of them and, and talk about it with some more authority. But yeah, for the most part, you're right. The Sergeant Fury image of the cigar chomping doesn't listen to his superiors but gets the job done, cliched is war hero. Here is here, cliche. But, but weirdly, yeah, the handling of it doesn't feel as... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really well done. And I think a lot of it comes through as well with Ennis is very clearly a writer who spent a lot of time researching mm-hmm. and, and reading about and, this stuff. And reading all this stuff as well. He, he lived in Ireland yeah. during the 80s and the 90s. Well, that's where it? he started. His first comics were all about the Troubles, weren't they? A few yeah. Troubles more. And... Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a lot of first-hand and, well, mostly second-hand, but first-hand experience in these characters. And I think that adds a lot of weight to it, which is reflected here. Mm. It's also got the Inglorious Bastards thing of just killing as many Nazis as possible, <laughs> yeah. as economically as possible, which I thought would appeal to you. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's essentially it. You know, I, I, these characters are very much, they don't care if they don't get out of the war as long as they kill enough with them. Yeah, as long as they take enough with them. And it does, there's an element of... Yeah, there is that Sergeant Fury, Sergeant Rock camaraderie where they all are firing off smart-ass one-liners at each other. Yeah. But again, there felt more of a gritty realism to it. And I don't know if that was because of the black and white artwork. And that shot, that's a famous image, isn't it, of the soldiers walking the silhouette. So that that kind of thing. And I think also what kind of adds more weight to it is it's all spoken in past tense. These characters yes. are dead now. Yeah. This is all being spoken about what's that? Because the I like the caption here. Ahead lay Normandy, the low countries, eventually Germany. Some of them would make it, some would not. But in the years to come when they reflected on the things they'd done and understand fully what it was they'd put a stop to, then some of them would allow themselves a measure of pride. After all, they made victory possible. They were splendid. But yeah, it's past tense, but it's also acknowledging that there's a melancholy to this. Some of these people here, they're all smiling and happy in this last page. They've won yeah. another victory on the step 
the road to victory yeah. will not come home. Yeah. And there's always that element, I think, to British war comics. There was always, we never forgot the price. It wasn't heroic to die for your country. Far yeah. better to live for your country and come home and show, no, we did that. Yeah. We stopped them. And there was always that feeling over the top of it. But yeah, I like the Surge as well. That's one I've considered going to that Treasury of British Comics. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, I'll get that one. Because that does an awful lot of these where you're like, all right, I'd read more of this. Yeah. Which is why I'm glad we got the five-issue miniseries. Well that's, well, that's it. When Ennis gets the hook in and, and then you get the hook in, it's yep. like, okay. Yes. That's why I think I still think he's one of the best comic writers around. He is, at the caveat that he's also one of the worst. Yes. And there's there's hardly ever any middle ground. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk about that later. I mean, let's give him all the credit in the world for carving a career for himself without going near superheroes for any length of time. Yeah. For the most part. Because whenever he has, it's always been a disaster. Yes. Uh, the next strip, Crazy Keller, inspired at least visually by Donald Sutherland in M.A.S.H., saw Keller slipping his fingers into every illegal pie in the European theatre of war. After all, if you can stick it to the Nazis and make a book on the side, who's to say that's a bad thing? In this story, Keller and his gunner Uriel are blackmailed by a senior CO into going deep behind enemy lines to rescue Otto Lent, a German professor and creator of arms. After a thrilling and rather funny chase between Keller and the Russian and German armies, Keller decides to push Lent off a cliff rather than have his horrific weaponry be used by either side. Again, I, this was one of my favourite ones in the I book. I loved this. This was a joy to read. Yep. And there's, I want more Ennis and Burnham. Yep. Because there's something about them. They're both, um, they know how to do silly, but have the gravitas to kind of weigh it in a bit at the same time. Yep. Whether that, you know, Burnham's visuals or Ennis is, is writing. Mm-hmm. And this is, it's a fun romp, but then every once in a while it'll be like... It'll be serious. They're rescuing a Nazi scientist who was developing war weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's, and it's, it's Keller's realization that just because he's on our side doesn't make those weapons any less devastating. So the fact that they push him off the cliff mm-hmm. but steal his designs so is hilarious. They do the end of your eyes only, right? Okay. Where Roger Moore throws the attack off the cliff, right? Just as the Russian general's there to pick it up, okay. And the Russian general goes, "Well, okay, you've not got it, we've not got it. That's détente." Yeah, and he just waves at him and leaves. Yeah. And that, I thought that was perfect for this. But because it is, this is basically Garth Ennis writing an episode of the 18 that Quentin Tarantino will direct. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, the tone. The fact that we have one piece to set it up and then the yeah. rest of it is the actions already happened. Now mm-hmm. we're escaping from it and it's all just like a car chase. Yeah. But this, this first page was brilliant. Like this officer hates them. Yeah. And he knows they're up to illegal shit, but he can't prove it. Yeah. Apart from this file that he's got, but this file will end up in the bin if you do this dangerous mission. <laughs> and I think that's one of the fun things about it as well. Like, I don't think this book really has a good guy character in it. No, no. Well, maybe the Sarge. They're, well, they're all various shades of grey. But that's where Ennis lived, and that's yeah. where he succeeded, and that's where he excelled. Yeah. Every you look at preacher Jesse Cust, he's not a good guy. Yeah. But he's not a bad guy. Yeah. And and this is just like. 
the the war profiteering. Yep. He's a comedy character at the yeah. same time. Like it's this this was just such a joy to read. Well, he's basically Templeton Peck from the eighteen, <laughs> right, isn't he? Yeah. That that's essentially Face Man. Yeah. That the, those archetypes in that show. Yeah. Every single one of them's in here. Yeah. The hard bitten commander. The, the con scan artist, the slightly yeah, yeah. crazy pilot, they're all in here somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but th- the, this is the great. The dialogue in this one especially yes. is just great. And I, lo- I love the dynamic between Uriel and Keller. Yeah. Whereas Uriel's, he's like Kith. <laughs> There's a lot of, uh going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I loved this one. I love that. But I love as well the comradeship. Mm. That although he is very, oh, fuck. God's eye rolling. Yeah. He's got his back. They pull each other through yeah. it, yeah. And both of them approve of what happens at the end. I don't know that Ariel would have shoved him out of the Jeep and killed Otto, like Keller did, but he certainly doesn't have a problem with him doing it. But I think also the panel of it yeah. as well. You just see an arm. You don't see the axe. Yes. And you just see Keller's arm shoving him out the Jeep. And I love that they do a fucking turbo boost yeah. over a deserted, over a broken bridge. And you're like, for God's sake. No, like, that was also another recurring gag as well. Every bridge they go to has it's, been destroyed. Has been destroyed, yeah. And these like, well, well, we've got one more chance. There's another bridge down here. And then it's just a comedy Ben Hill style chase. Yeah. To get to the other bridge, only to realise this one's out as well. But also they kind of escape it because they run through the Russian camp and then they run through the Nazi camp. Yeah. And play each other off yeah. against each other while they just leg it. Yeah. So I absolutely, yeah, this was one of the best strips in the book. And I would like to see a crazy Keller miniseries by Garth Ennis and Chris Burnham. Yeah, definitely. Like these, have, I don't think they've ever worked together before, but something about them have just they clicked. Right, okay. Um, and yeah, just perfectly playing off each other's strengths. Yeah, that was one of the best ones in it. That one perfectly judged the humour but also the seriousness of what they were doing. Absolutely, I loved it. I loved that one. That was one of my favourites in the book. Their next one is also one of my favourites in the book. <laughs> it is. Dredger, actions take on the 70s archetype of the loner hero with a big gun. Take elements of Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry, specifically his luxurious her. Mm. Uh, mix liberally with John Thor's rule-breaking Jack Regan from the Sweeney and add a dash of Lewis Collins's thuggish Bodie from the Professionals and the result is a tough, no-nonsense lawman who shoots first and doesn't speak very much at all. Well, until he speaks up quite a bit. <laughs> well, until later on. Dredger is harder to take seriously nowadays. But being from an age where men were men and women were birds... <laughs> There's a certain cathartic pleasure in seeing him just murder his enemies. All scumbags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In increasingly inventive I ways. I honestly think a Jason Statham modern-day dredger would be perfect. There's a degree uh, of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, yes. <laughs> God, I would love that. Garth Ennis <laughs> has to write it. Yeah. Do it as like a miniseries on Netflix. Yeah. Get Matthew Vaughn to direct. And, and Garth Ennis's silly over the top yeah this one's a spoof right? slapstick yeah uh, but it's it's still all satire and it's still funny because he's also uh, this this is all kind of accurate yeah i mean i love the stuff with the the framing sequence that the, the two guys in charge are terrified that this woman has been put in charge yeah similar to you know the real met office being taken over by a woman that was a real thing i think and panicking about it and then the twist ending being that it's Treasure's mum. And I, I also love that these... <laughs> it's not as if 
they're not worried because, you know, any changes are going to happen. They're worried because they're incredibly sexist men, but they want to hide other collateral damage sexist yeah. man. Yeah, they, they let Dredger take all the flack for it because he's more sexist than they are. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I mean, it's probably the most typically Garth Ennis story in the book. Yes. It's full of violence, black humour, and that old Ennis favourite, people in power being reprehensible scumbags. Yeah. You've also got something, the diplomatic attaché, Naif Bin Salman, is a paedophile whose death would nevertheless cause an international incident. So Dredge has got to save his life. Yeah. But he doesn't really. No, he definitely doesn't. Yes. I mean, and the, the the language in this one is funny. This is some of his best dialogue in the book. This is some of his... And this is inherently British. There's a lot of, like, British slang and yeah. that in here. Well, they refer to Super Soraway. Yeah. Which was the son's slogan. All for right, adverts. Okay. You're Super Soraway son! Right, That okay. were the TV adverts at the time. I mean, it's toilet paper now. Oh, yeah. Particularly in Liverpool, where it's referred to as the scum. Well, they don't even uh, they don't even it sell it. Yeah, yeah. Nope, they don't. Even, they refuse to sell the Sun because of the coverage of Hillsborough. But the 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 dialogue in this one is is genuinely funny. And yeah, this is this is what you think of if you don't really know what Garth Ennis does. This does nothing to dissuade you. Yeah, but this is what Garth Ennis does, and I feel like this this does it well enough. Yeah, this is Garth Ennis having fun, but it's not like it's not bad. No, no, it's great. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, I would very much love to see a throwback, like you say, Jason Sudeikis and playing a throwback seventies. Yeah, Gene Hunt style detective. Yeah, but doing it for real. And the thing is, this this perfectly works translated into the modern day as well. Yes. Nothing's nothing's changed. I don't know. I, I think you can argue they don't make them like this anymore. Oh, they don't. But I, well, I don't know. They absolutely don't. And this is kind of very much a. a parody of an of its time story yes but i think there's nothing about this that would not work translated to modern day life on mars did it yeah but life on mars celebrated its orgy of masculinity whilst also pointing out that kind of 70s meat-headedness was sexist life on mars had its cake and stuffed its face with it i mean to be fair the only way you could do this as a modern day translation is you don't go any past like 2006 that was like the heyday for these type of films the transport i would argue you don't go past 1986 even lethal weapon which was like the late 80s early 90s it's starting to feel a little bit tired but, and also Mel Gibson's rampant homophobia in that film doesn't help. But you had nothing but films like this. Yes, you in had, the 70s. Well, no, even in the 2000s. Lock, Stock, Smoking Barrels, uh, Looking at Miss Levin. These were all oh, very yeah, much yeah. of this of this vein. Actually, oh, that's a good point, that. I was thinking this was more who does wins and the professionals and that kind of thing. But you're not, you're not wrong. Like a Guy Ritchie film is yeah. still a decent translation of this. Yeah, but I don't know that I want Guy Ritchie making the movie for this. Oh, I, I think it needs somebody who's got a lighter touch to it. Oh, I don't care for Guy Ritchie, but but that's, that's why that's, I think Matthew Vaughan. Yeah, yeah, would be better for this, and from a Garth Ennis script, mm. because I think and then if you do Matthew Vaughan, clearly Jason Statham's going to get the role. Yeah. And Jason Statham's never let us down in the meat-headed action. Oh, exactly. Have you seen Crank? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love Crank. <laughs> It's so dumb, yeah, but brilliant. He's the only thing worth watching the Untouchables movies for. Oh, the un- the Untouchables. Yeah, the are they the untou- did no the Expendables. The ex- right, okay, not yeah. the Untouchables. That's Sean Connery. The Indispensables. The only one, yeah, the only one I've not watched is Parker because Jason Statham's not Parker. No, 
but again, that's that's also that kind of vein of being like this from whether it's successful or not. It's a modern day retelling of that type of narrative. Yes, uh, this one was massive fun. Yeah, this was typically Ennis, the you know the pedophile guy claiming diplomatic immunity. You which, are going through you know, an Ennis checklist. Yes, <laughs> on this one, but it's one story in the book, and it was just such a good laugh. Yeah, <laughs> that I don't care. I do love that we do actually have the sun in this and the headline is just pedo, pedo, yeah, pedo. Yeah, well, it's the sun. So, you know. But I like that. I love that his mum ends up being his boss and her phone is one of those big yeah. 1980 things. They also That's both that have one. the same hair. Yes, absolutely brilliant fun, that one. I loved that one. The next one's also black and white uh, and is another team up. Smashing together Hellman of Hammerforce with Glory Rider. Hellman was that rarity a strip about a German tank unit commander, Kurt Hellman, who was actually a decent person and tries to spur prisoners of war and keep his crew alive. And Glory Rider about a cowardly US Army commander, Jeb Ryder, who only craves glory and advancement, often at the expense of his men's lives. Only Sergeant Stephen Hilt sees Ryder for what he is and tries to undermine him at every turn, only to fail every week as Ryder gains more and more glory, but goes steadily more and more insane. This was the most provocative story in the book mm. because we're used to it being the gung-ho US Army commander getting the job done and the sadistic German officer for whom victory is all. And they flip it on its head here. Yes, Hellman is on the wrong side, mm. but he's shown to be a competent and compassionate officer. Yeah. Whilst his opposite number is a glory-seeking warmonger. Well, it's it's kind of a really interesting. I can certainly see you know, why it would have been controversial, but there's yeah, a kind yeah, of yeah. argument to be made of just like, Germans were not on the wrong side, they were just on their side. And not all and, Germans were Nazis. And this is one of those, we've we've all seen this character, but they're always American or British. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's one of those, it's very easy to point and say, well, you're on the wrong side, we're on the right side, but there's just sides yeah like and this this story does a really good job of demonstrating that yeah and sometimes you're like you can see why people got upset about it though yeah because sometimes to win a war you have to dehumanize your enemy oh yeah which is as as we discussed you know when we did the marvel ones it was all propaganda but it's it was sometimes pointing out something so simple as well they're just human beings everyone is is a mother's child Mm. it kind of like is is you know it's controversial yeah it is it is a very hellman was a very controversial strip uh like he says in the introduction to it it didn't last long and as you pointed out earlier on before we started recording you can understand why yeah this will not have gone down well in the year of the, the queen's jubilee yeah 1976 yeah so portraying a, a Wehrmacht officer as sympathetic will not have been something that the british public wanted to say so you can understand it, which is yeah. I mean, it's 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 interesting and it's good and it's it's a lot of. Um, I know a lot of stories and things that I do enjoy. Kind of uh, kind of break that down. Uh, one of the tropes throughout the Metal Gear Solid series, for instance, is the fact that you know you could be fighting someone one day and they're your allies the next day. Look mm-hmm. at the Cold War and yep. the Soviets. And it's one of those interesting things that I've always loved. It's just like you know they're not. The bad guys, you're just told that... The they are the bad of, guys today. They're the enemy of your country. Yeah. I mean, and, and I like the conversation that the, the, the basically they have a big gunfight. Yeah. And the only people who survive are Sergeant Hiltz and Hellman. Yeah. And they have this great fight where he, he calls him Ami. 
And the American soldier's like, Amy? Yeah. And he explains to American, Amy, Tommy, Ivan, Fritz. Yeah. So we're the Tommies. Yeah. Ivan's were the Russians. And he's Fritz like, oh, we just call you Krauts. And we just call you Krauts. And he's like, oh, thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> yeah. So that's quite, in, that's quite, in, and they have a lovely conversation. I love that Hiltz is drawn as being like this fresh-faced, freckled-faced yeah. young kid, essentially. And oh, he's yeah. already made sergeant. So all that's quite interesting. And the conversation that they had at the end where he says, well, it's clear what you have to do. Mm. You have to kill him. Yeah. And Hiltz is like, you're just telling me that so you, I'll take out another one of our commanders. And the German, Hellman's like, no, if he's, you've got, it's checks and balances. Yeah. You accomplished something here today. Your men died, but you took out my platoon. Yeah. So you accomplished something. Yeah. But if the checks and balances on his side are, he's just giving himself more and more glory at the cost of his men, mm. then at some point you've got to take that guy out. Yeah. And Hiltz actually starts thinking about it. And the, the strip actually ends with him pointing his finger at him and going, yeah. bang. I do, I do love like one of the final lines as well, where it's just something like, you know, let's hope we never meet again. Yeah. Or, no, his, his line is actually, let's hope we meet after the war. Yeah, 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 yeah. The idea being that when this is all over, I will quite happily go for a drink with you. But if we do see each other again, on we will f- have to shoot yeah, each other. On the field of battle, Yeah, and it's you or me, I'm going to shoot you. Yeah. And I thought that was really... This This is Ennis at his best. If Dredger is Ennis at his baser, yeah. but still fun, yeah. this is Ennis at his best. He's showing a different side of the war. He's showing a different side of the people fighting it. He's showing off the humanity in his work mm. that I think is frequently overlooked by his critics. As you pointed out earlier, he often doesn't do himself any favours. No. He leans a lot into his baser instincts. But the best of his work, which is why we like it, is he is willing to consider both sides of his argument. Yeah. And he's willing to give humanity to people that in other lesser writers' hands, Mark Miller, these people may not be given that humanity. They may just be demonised or whatever. Yeah. And there's a place for that. Yeah. There's absolutely a place for that. But there's there's a lot of places for that. Yeah. And there's very little places for things like this, which is a shame. You know, we everyone has gone, gone through school and learned about the Somme and the football game. Yeah. But there's not really many places for that other than that specific instance yeah. in media. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of people accuse him of being sexist and racist. He's none of those things. No. And I actually think that's what numerous Twitter attempts have, have been initiated to try and get Garth Ennis cancelled. Right, okay. And they've never gone anywhere. Largely because at the heart of it, his work has heart. Yeah. Has lots of heart. And also, just because you depict something doesn't mean that you believe that thing. Oh, there's a lot of people who don't believe that. I saw somebody <laughs> put a list on of cancellable writers and Neil Gaiman was on it. Right, Because okay. he'd done a Sandman story that one of the characters in it was anti-trans. And loads of people were like, Neil Gaiman? Well, so, <laughs> if that is the story that I'm thinking of as well, the, the, the story goes out of its way yeah. to... Show me you've not actually read it. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's expecting people to have media literacy. Yes, and then there's a lot of kids on Twitter who don't have any. Anyway, uh, Kids Rule OK is the next strip. As mentioned in the intro, this was the strip that caused the biggest fuss. Here, Ennis goes all postmodern and uses that to tell the story of the infamous cover, which is a kid with a bicycle chain allegedly killing a policeman. Mm. Because the copper is on the floor dressed in blue with the policeman's hat at the side of him. 
events. This event never happened in the actual strip, which is what Ennis focused on in this story. Here he goes all meta by having the actual story be the real-life editors discuss the real-life furore that surrounded Kids Rule OK and how it led to Action's downfall. And in this story, they actually point out, but that's not a policeman. Yeah. He's not wearing a police uniform. Yeah. The hat is there, but that could have just fell off somebody's head. That is not actually a police... So it's a misunderstanding, probably by the colouring... Yeah. Which clearly colours it as a blue police uniform. Or it was that they were intentionally doing that. And there's a part of this where it feels a bit cute. like being, I, I agree, yeah, I thought that. Like being a bit pedantic to get out of a hole. I firmly believe that that is a police officer on the cover and they just didn't draw it right. And then to kind of point out, well, no, because actually it's not accurate felt. Or cute. he's not drawn a police officer for that very reason and then they've coloured it like that to lean into yeah. that. But I deliberately think, I'm with you, I think they deliberately lent into that controversy and it backfired. Mm. I honestly think that that's true. And this one as well, it was quite, well, when reading this one, I was kind of a little bit disappointed because I was kind of given all the background and it's like, oh, well, we're going to tell the story of, you know, what if that was the case? Yeah. And I was like, all right, okay, so that's going to be interesting because obviously it's going to be a, a satire on the times and of the 80s. This is more 2000s than 80s. You've got a lot of, um, you know, Blue Lives Matter satire in this. Yeah. You've got COVID pandemic. And I felt more disappointed in that because that's fine in a story like that. But I was hoping for a bit more 80s political satire rather than things that I've just lived through. Yeah. I mean, the old, I mean even the criticism of the Met Office here, that's going on now. Yeah, yeah. Just this week, a police officer has been fired, hasn't he? Yeah. For nefariousness yeah was it what was he doing there's been a couple recently so i get confused there's, anyway there's been quite matter. a lot recently yeah. and the fact that the, the met office have taken any uh, accountability for it is surprising yes they have they fired him so that i didn't know what it was but i was disappointed by this and the word you use a cute mm. despite the level of ultra violence in this yeah and essentially the police kicked to death a child yeah. In retaliation for the perceived death of a police officer, which in this story didn't happen. Yeah. Because he actually says that. But you've got the guy wearing a, a, a mask because there's yeah. a pandemic going on and they're all just like, oh, bloody pussy. Yeah, it, it did. It did. Feel, this one felt a bit disingenuous. And I, did, I wasn't really a fan of this. One. I would have liked what they were doing had they have kind of done it better. Mm. Don't, I don't know. I don't. I didn't like. I didn't buy into the, that criticism that we didn't put a policeman on the cover. I think they knew exactly what they were doing and yeah, it backfired yeah, yeah, on. Yeah. I think that's subsequent people have looked at that and gone, well, he's not wearing a police uniform. Yeah, so would you have preferred it had they just been like, no, definitely, this is what we intend to do yeah. and we're sticking by it? Yeah, it kind of is them passing the book a little bit and yeah. saying, no, you've misunderstood it. Yeah. Instead of defending what the, the story they were telling. Yeah. And Kids Rule OK was the one that suffered the most. When it came back, it was suddenly moral. Right. And they were all interested in social causes yeah. and rebuilding society. Whereas before that, they were like, screw it. Let's burn <laughs> it all down. Interestingly as well, the what we'll see next of this story does this better because it leans into yeah. and owns everything much more yes i agree entirely but we'll get to that in a minute lovely listener the final story 
is Nina Petrova and the Angels of Death, uh, in which Ennis gives Nina Petrova a long overdue solo spotlight. As with Hellman of Hellforce, Johnny Red, Nina's original strip focused on the Russians' war effort, not something most war strips were interested in focusing on. Nina headed up the Night Witches, or the Nacht Hexen, as the Nazis called them, also named the Angels of Death. The Night Witches were a group of Soviet pilots, all women, who led numerous successful campaigns against the Nazis by cutting their engines on their PO2s and gliding in silence to then make surprise attacks under cover of night. Ennis would mine this in one of his Battlefield stories, where right, he literally okay. does like a three or four issue arc yeah. about the the Nacht Hexen mm. and what they did and how they did it. Because he says in the intro here, they took a lot of artistic liberties in Johnny Red. Yeah. Like, the planes were often depicted as being slightly better than they were in real life. Yeah, yeah. They had communications. Yeah. Which they didn't have yeah. in real life. So when he got to do his version, he, he did it a lot more close to reality. Yeah. This is still great. This is still an absolutely brilliant story. Um, I don't know if there's anything different or amazing about it, other than it's it's focusing on the women pilots and the women's contribution to the war effort. Otto Screamer makes an appearance again. Yeah. And I don't know if nice is the right word, but this one felt nice. Um, it's The art's great in it. It's very self-contained. Mm-hmm. It does all the... It kind of is the best and worst of everything that we've mentioned so far. You know, it is very heavy on the explanations of how things work. Yep. But then at the same time, like it shows the good, it shows the bad, it shows what they were doing, it shows what the cost was. It doesn't have a happy ending. Nope. But I also like that he shows the difference in the camaraderie between the women and the men. Yeah. That the male camaraderie is all typically male. Yeah. But nothing wrong with that. The women are a bit more thoughtful and a bit more loving. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, the two that died were a couple. Yes, well, I, and I love that, that, you know, maybe they both love the same guy, they spent a lot of time together. Yeah. He is a bit of a dish, and yeah. she, Nina's like, isn't it obvious? <laughs> yeah. They were both in love with each other. Yeah. And then they all have a minute, and they drink to their memory, and then go, well, I can't put that in the report. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, okay, whatever. As long as they get the medal, I don't care. As long as they get notified. Something, yeah. Yeah, to, for the heroism and what they did here. The deaths aren't in vain, Fine, don't mention that they were together. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And uh, she ends up, and even the ending, which leads into getting into bed with Johnny Red and going, right, keep me comfortable. It's bittersweet, isn't it? Yeah. It's, she needs to feel something. And it's it's the fitting end to this book and a bookend to, you know, the Johnny Red at the start as well. Yeah, that Johnny Red makes an appearance at the end. Um, the annual overall, what do you think of it? It's got a good batting average, hasn't it? Yeah, it's it's perfectly fine. It does what it set out to do, uh, of kind of introducing these characters. It's very obviously a, a Garth Ennis's love letter. Yeah. But for me personally, it just didn't quite hook its nails, and I'm content with what I've read. I'm not bothered about reading much more. So you weren't bothered about the five issue magazine series that followed this successful annual. Well. <laughs> Uh, it had a free zero issue on the 2000 AD website. Okay. So, lovely listener, go and download that and you can read that zero right. issue for free. Uh, I I loved it. I only picked saw it by accident. Mm. It was up to issue three when I discovered this season existed. Okay. So, I basically ordered them all subscribed on the 2000 AD website. So, I right. got the first three issues all in one. Yeah. And then they sent me the other two issues as they came out. Um, it's a proper good package. My only complaint, again, 
I wish it had had a wider distribution. Because that's another issue as well. Like it's clearly trying to get more people mm-hmm. to read these comics, but because of the state things are in now, you, you're targeting a niche demographic. Yep, yeah, it should have been in WH Smith's and Tesco and Asda. It should have been racked with the movie magazines or the military magazines. It shouldn't have been with the comics. Yeah. It should have been attracting new readers because I, I think this is teens and up. Yeah. Even though Ennis says in the introduction to issue one, there won't be any swearing. Yeah. Because we're going out on newsstands. I don't think it was on newsstands enough. Yeah. I saw it buried in comic shops because it didn't really fit in with where they could rack it. It's, yeah. it's a magazine size, so you can't put it with the American comics. You put it with the graphic novels, it kind of gets a little bit overshadowed because it's not a graphic novel, it's a magazine, so it's yeah. not got the thickness. It was only four ninety nine, which is comparable to most magazines on the shelf today. Yeah, It's cheaper than American comics now, mm. now that they're the imports and all that stuff. It's better value for money than them as well. It's Each issue has a fully painted cover, two complete stories, text pieces about the history, both of the comic and the real-life history behind the story. Each issue was uh, a story written by Ennis and then a second story written by somebody else with different art teams every month. Uh, it carried on. Issue one was another Johnny Red story by Garth Ennis and Keith Burns and HMS Nightshade by John Wagner and Dan Cornwell. Issue two brought back Casey, Crazy Keller by Ennis and Chris Burnham. So there's another Chris Burnham mm. on there for you. D-Day Dawson by Dan Abnett and Phil Winslade. Dredger came back by Ennis and John Higgins. That's really funny. Okay. The Dredger story is genuinely entertaining and funny. Major Easy by Rob Williams and Henry Flint. Issue three was Cooley's Gun by Ennis and Staz Johnson and Death Squad by Rob Williams and PJ Holden. Sorry, that was issue four. And issue five featured Hellman back by Ennis and Mike Dory and another Nina Petrova story by Todd and Grobeck and Patrick Goddard. Not a single one of them was a dud. Okay. So does that mean you don't want to borrow? I mean, maybe. (laughs) I loved them. Mm. This was my favourite comic being published at the time. I absolutely adored it. I tweeted it out. Anyone who listened, go and buy them. They're probably still in your comic shops. Um, I would imagine they'll get collected. Yeah. As another hardcover or whatever. But I personally want the magazines to succeed. And I would have ranked it or racked it. And made sure it was in regular news agents in um, airports, in train stations. I'd have got that everywhere. Because yeah. 2000 AD would have that distribution. Because oh, yeah, 2000 yeah, yeah. AD is in every news agent. It is. And yeah. supermarket, because that's where I bought this. Mm. 2000 AD issue, what number is it? 2350 from the 20th of September 2023 was an issue of 2000 AD, but was also a time-shifted anomaly. Instead of the regularly scheduled issue, we were treated to a comic from another timeline where battle and action merged with 2000 AD back in 1982. This issue, due to time travel shenanigans, landed on our newsagents in our reality and gave us a peek at what might have been. Uh, thicker than the usual 2008, so it retailed for 4.99, I think. Yeah, instead of the usual, it's 2008 3.99 now. Oh, I don't know. I don't. It's something like that. This was more expensive because it was a one-off battle action special. After framing, oh sorry, after a framing sequence, taking the piss out of the corporate reasons for the merger. 
Uh, this issue kicked off with Judge Dredd Juvie Rules OK, taking the premise of Kids Rule OK and updating it for Judge Dredd. As with Kids Rule, the virus has wiped out 95% of the over-20s leading the kids to revolt. What did you think of... You preferred this Kids Rule OK, didn't I you? did. It's treating the the kind of backstory with more respect, I think. Yeah, and, it, it honours its premise straight. more. Yeah. And I think Judge Dredd is the kind of perfect setting for it where you can kind of have your main children characters kill a police officer. But because a judge. It, but because it's, because it's a fictional one, you kind of get by it without that controversy. So this kind of is the perfect safety net to tell a story like this. Which is why 2000 AD came about. Battle and action were both caught in controversy. Yeah, yeah. Pat Mills realised, what Gene Roddenberry realised, what Kenneth Johnson realised with V, you couch it in science fiction... Yeah, and you can get away with that. Still didn't protect it from from Thatcher in that though. But yeah, but two thousand Eddie survived. Yes, and still survives. Yeah, so maybe there's something in it. Yeah, if it's couched in science fiction, uh, the gangs, as usual, <clears throat> the Judge Dread living blocks that are named after famous people. There was a Meg Ryan headhunter and the Yuncey Street Savages were the gangs. I also, I presume that's supposed to be Yancey Street. The 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 Geordie P uh, yeah, gang as well. The which Jordan is... Peterson Proud Boys gang who live in the David Cameron block. Yeah. It's a little-known fact that the David Cameron block will ultimately collapse because it has no spine. <laughs> yeah, so this was a good update of uh, the Kids Rule OK storyline. It was, it? and it, it did its modern-day satire much better as well. Yes, yes, it did, because, like you say, it could couch it in science fiction. Death Game 2049 updates the older strips Spinball and Death Game 1999 into the future. It's probably the one that works the best, given they were science fiction to begin with. Yeah. So that was a science fiction story in Battle or Action, whichever one it was in. And this was all right. It was It was the weakest of yeah, the bunch. Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with everything you said. I think that one, it was fine. Yeah. But it's when it says next issue, and there is no next issue, Yeah. with Judge Dredd, I was like, oh, kind of want to read a bit more of that yeah. whereas with this i was like oh, okay yeah not really bothered el mestizo leans into the possession genre with the western hero el mestizo who was a mexican bandito in the civil war here he's possessed by a shoulder symbiotic alien like you've seen in doctor who and whatever it's got great art by chris weston but it's a curious choice because it was one of battle's least successful strips only running for four months all right okay Great art, though. Yeah, this one was great. And this one, by the time I finished this one... You wanted more of yeah. this? Yeah, absolutely beautiful artwork. And it's all exposition and setup, but the artwork's great. And it's just... I don't know. This did get its hooks in. It's yeah. like, oh, I want to know more about these Because of the twist ending. Well, not necessarily that. I wouldn't. I, I could have gone on without the, the twist ending. Mm. Um, the twist ending is just there to tie it into 2000 AD at the end of the day. But yes. I, I liked the characters enough and the, the alien things. But like, all right, okay, there's something here. Yeah, yeah. Dredger came back for the next one where he sucked off into the future. This felt like a riff on Demolition Man, but if it starred John Thor instead of Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Dredger's partner in the early panels is even drawn to look like Dennis Waterman and he's named Carter. Right. And then he's killed. Uh, I was iffy on this one. I felt moving Dredger into the future, kind of like they did with Jonah Hex, doesn't really work. But when you got to the end of it, I did kind of wish there was another chapter. <laughs> See, I don't know, because I kind of got the bit that it didn't stick around long enough to kind of Yeah, it's only four pages, it. isn't it? Yeah, 
Five pages. And this is just a trailer for a story that we're never going to read. I kind of just would have preferred them to just do... Maybe have him already in the future. You have one panel saying he was whisked away, and then mm. you've got him being a cop in the future. Instead of it being a pilot for a series you're now never going to get. Or half a pilot. Yeah. It's a pre-credit sequence. Yeah. There's then a two-page text piece telling you all about the original Kids Rule OK, Death Game 1999, El Mestizo, Dredger, Hellman of Hammer Force and Major Easy, most of which we've we've tackled ourselves over the course of this. The next strip, Hellman of Hell Force, brings back Hellman, takes the title seriously as has Hellman now fight demons of hell whilst being wanted by his own men for prioritising the lives of his troops over victory. Again, I'm not entirely convinced this one worked. It doesn't work. It's the plot of Doom. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, that's true. I think turning the enemies into the literal forces of hell takes away... There's nothing special about this character anymore. Yeah. You've not got your sympathetic German who isn't a Nazi kind of mm. stick when there's no there's no Americans. There's no allies. There's nothing there. Yeah. You've taken away the defining feature of the character to just make him... A German. Yes. So I I kind of didn't think that one was... I didn't think that one was a successful idea. Not bothered if they don't carry on with that. Finally, Major Easy and the Treasure of Solomon sees Major Easy tackling the Nazis' interest in the occult. One of the better stories. Yeah. Taking Easy down an Indiana Jones path that really works. It does really work, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. This is one that I would have carried on reading. Yes, because Major Easy drives his jag through <laughs> yeah. the Nazi-occupied territories. Never gets bombed. <laughs> uh, he's another one of those typical doesn't follow orders kind of officers but there's something fun about him and he's teamed up with um, um, uh, what was her name a Penelope Bridger Phoebe, Phoebe Waller Bridger type character yeah. from the new Indiana Jones film and the mission is to stop the Nazis from getting occult items such as the Ark of the Covenant I would have read more of this one I genuinely and it even ends like Razor the Lost Art yeah. doesn't it you know, it, this one's wearing its influence on its sleeve. And if you think 1982, mm. and what did 2000A do, Battle Action do, if not rip off modern movies? Yeah. Well, there you go. There's the gag in the final bookend where they've got Spielberg directing a yeah, Major Easy film. Major Easy movie. So, yeah, so it ends with uh, a what's his name, another text piece. And it says there's a special crossover issue of the Judge Dread magazine, issue 460, that apparently came out on. It doesn't say what date, though. It just says on sale now. September. Right, so. 27th. So that's, you know, I was a bit. What's his name? No, that's Prog 2351. Oh, right, because that's, that's, that that that's the next issue of 2008. Oh, right, okay. Uh, I and I couldn't find the Judge Red magazine. Unless that's a gag? No, I think it's... I'll have to have a look. Because it's, it's a very convincing gag. Yeah. Because <clears throat> I wonder if the Judge Red magazine carries on the kids' rule or care story. Yeah. Which... Then I would have we would have covered it, but I couldn't find a copy in my local newsagents or supermarket. <laughs> so get on that 2008, eh? Battle action shows there's life in the war strip yet, given time and greater historical perspective. The stories can be deeper than previously, although battle and action deserve credit for what they did achieve. With fair consideration be given to the Russian war effort, the almost sacrilegious idea of a noble Nazi, and playing less lip service to the gung-ho depiction of war in favour of a more nuanced approach. Uh, we are getting another series next time, next year, so I hope battle action continues for a good long time. Enjoy them, mostly. Mostly. <clears throat> it was interesting. It's one that I wouldn't have necessarily read myself. Even with the Garth Ennis connection. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's something about what we were saying earlier. The thing with Garth Ennis is I'm always very reluctant. Unless I hear a lot of good things about him, I'll tend to steer away because the 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 risk reward with Garth Ennis is quite a steep one. It could be crossed. It's yeah. It's either the best, one of the best things you've ever read, or one thing that you wish you you wish you'd only spent fifty p on. Yeah, that's true. All right, we'll wrap up with our last email, uh, Matt Prather. Hey, Andrew and Michael. Hey, Matt. Listen to your Reign of the Superman episode. Greatly entertaining, thanks. The only insight I can pass on involves the smarmy American political representative in said story arc. <laughs> Bill Clinton is indeed a card-carrying member of the Democratic Party. This plays no part in the story, so enough from me. Thanks, Matt Prather. Yeah, because we asked, was he Republican? It doesn't matter what party he was yeah. from. He still backed, he still backed the wrong robot. That's absolutely true. He did. Anyway... That about wraps it up for this time. Another tight 90 minutes. We really oh do spoil you, don't you? Um, this episode's going out in December, so happy Christmas. But we will be. <laughs> we said we wouldn't. But we're getting <laughs> it's timeless. It's evergreen. All right, it's timeless and evergreen. If it isn't Christmas, happy Easter or whenever the hell you're listening to it. <laughs> we will be doing a Christmas episode, though. So That's you'll get a bonus episode in December before we go back to our regularly scheduled programming at the end of January. So this should land on the 21st. So be good to yourselves. Everything's going to be fine. We've not decided what we're covering. Yeah, it all depends what you get for Christmas. You may get something for Christmas and go, let's do this next. Well, unless we can travel back in time. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I suppose we have to have it planned before then. Well, we'll see how it goes. Uh, take care. We'll see you next. Oh, yeah, I've mentioned the book, haven't I? You've mentioned the book. Yeah, yeah. You're in you published. Yeah, give us, give us, buy us a drink. Uh, boost us. Loads of people did last time. Loads yeah. of people boosted us across the various platforms. And they haven't even heard your, your And they haven't even yet. heard me say that yet. So thank you very Well, they have now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they hadn't then. No. And still haven't as we record this. God, this timeline. But by the time they hear this, they will have. Yeah. Wibbly wobbly. Wibbly. Time. And then by the time we release this, Doctor will be back. Three, okay. three brand three. new specials. Starring David Tennant as the 14th Doctor, not the 10th Doctor. Wibbly wobbly. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production and hosted by Andrew and Michael Leyland. All opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of the hosts and no one else. The free-to-use music that closes and opens the show was the sci-fi cyberbunk trailer by somebody called Stringer Bell on the pixabay.com free-to-use website. Thank you very much to him. If you would like to support the show, you can buy Michael and I, or both of us, or one of us, a coffee. Go to co-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com, slash Leyland. In one month, an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, coming in your ears. It's a date.